This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 359. And you're listening to The Daniel Glass Show, only on Drummer's Resource. This is it, right here. Uh-huh. Then you gotta add some of the little tricks. Ah, ah, you'll be swinging. Uh-huh. Right. It's The Daniel Glass Show on Drummer's Resource, offering a deeper look into Daniel's unique take on music, drumming, and life. Philosophy, motivation, musical deconstructions, and conversations with influential voices in the music industry. Hey everybody, Daniel Glass here. I want to welcome you back to the Daniel Glass Show on Drummer's Resource. Hope you're having a beautiful day. I am. And uh, I want to make a quick announcement. Um, At the time of this airing, which is in February of 2018, uh, I've now launched registration for the third annual Daniel Glass uh, Jazz Intensive, Daniel Glass New York Jazz Intensive, and um, we've, we do it every year at the Drummers Collective here in Manhattan, where I live. If you are into jazz, if you are uh, into coming to New York to be at the center of the jazz capital of the universe, I invite you to come join us. Uh, The dates are June 1 through 4, 2018. I invite you to go to danielglass.com, go to the clinics slash intensive, uh, intensives tab, and check out all the information about the 2018 Daniel Glass New York Jazz Intensive. Um, Perhaps more on that later. If, If you're listening to this after that date, Go check it out anyway. There's a cool video. You can learn about what we do if you're interested in jazz, interested in uh, studying very intensively with me, special guests, concerts every night, really imbibing the New York experience. Uh, Definitely check it out because hopefully we'll be doing it for many years to come. All right. On that note, I want to jump in and get to the topic of this week's edition of the Daniel Glass Show, and that is the subject of practice. Um, for those of you who have been listening since the very first episode of this podcast, I did that on a topic called deliberate practice. Um, this is a little bit different. The subject of this podcast is essentially turn the world into your practice room. Turn the world into your practice room. And I think the reason I decided to ruminate on this topic is that a lot of drummers and students complain that they don't have enough time to practice or that they have a hard time getting into the practice room and um, sort of it's a, a, a barrier to them, psychological, physical barrier, you know, uh, practicing causes me stress. I don't want to deal with it, so I'm not going to deal with it. Or, ah, uh, there's all these other things going on in my life. I'll just uh, do those instead of practicing. Some people love practicing. Some people are, they can't wait to practice. But a lot of people, practicing causes anxiety, causes stress. What if, you know, it's it's a lot to practice. It's hard. I'm going to struggle. I don't want to do those things. I don't want to feel these negative emotions, so I'm just going to avoid it. And oftentimes, then that becomes a big fat justification. Well, I don't have time, or I don't, you know, I don't this, or I don't that. So if, you know, My answer to that is to turn the world into your practice room. In other words, you know, we're very hung up on the idea that practicing must happen in a specific way and at a specific location. 
and it really limits our thought process, and it adds undue pressure to the whole experience of practicing. So I know it sounds crazy, but practicing should be something that we consider to be fun as well as something that's considered work. And turning the world into your practice room is a kind of a cool way to make practicing something fun, and it's also a way to normalize the idea of practicing. Instead of it's like, well, here's my life over here, and here's practicing over here, and those two things are mutually exclusive, right? They don't have anything to do with each other. I'm either living life or I'm practicing, you know? So, here are a number of of ways I've sort of ran through a lot of things off the top of my head. I also had posted this topic quite some time ago on my Facebook page, Daniel Glass, drummer, author, educator. Go check it out. We got 34,000 people over there. Lots of cool old school drumming videos, music videos, and lots of interesting topics that we discuss and ruminate. Daniel Glass, drummer, author, educator. Um, But I got a lot of really interesting student feedback in addition to the Um, suggestions that I made about how to turn the world into your practice room. So see if any of these resonate with you. I'm going to list some of the ones that I, that I got from, uh, I don't want to say students. I want to say those who are, who are following that Facebook page and who gave their suggestions. Um, So one way is keep a pair of sticks everywhere you are. And of course I should also step back and say that even though I'm going to talk about drum related practicing in this podcast. If you are not a drummer, compare these to whatever instrument you play or whatever it is that that you are going to practice. These are somewhat universal suggestions. So keep a pair of sticks everywhere. And I mean everywhere. So when I was in LA, uh, I live in New York now, I had a pair of sticks in my backpack. I had a pair of sticks in my car, had a pair of sticks in my practice room, had a pair of sticks in the living room. Um, If you Go to a job every day. Keep a pair of sticks there. If you're in school, put a pair of sticks in your locker that are just dedicated to being in these places. They don't leave these places. Now, wherever you go, you will find the tools of your trade. And well, I don't have a practice pad, or am I just going to hammer away on my desk and bother everybody? No. Um, There are solutions for that. So, you know, there are many uh, companies that make rubber tips um, for sticks that turn any pair of sticks into a set of practice sticks. I'm a Vic Firth endorser. Vic Firth makes something called universal practice tips. And, um, essentially it's a rubber ball that you put on the tip of your stick and it turns any surface now into a practice pad. You won't damage anything. You won't mark things up. Um, so, you know, take, take sticks with you. I remember I did a tour around 2003 of sort of the Midwest, and I wanted to really dig into a particular book. Um, I was there's a really amazing vintage drumming book about paradiddles that was ostensibly written by the, the legendary swing drummer Dave Tuff, and I had gotten a copy of this book, and so I took it with me on this tour. And every day during those long hours between load in. And sound check, which happens on every tour pretty much, uh, I would find time to go in the backstage somewhere 
somewhere off on my own and just work with my practice sticks on this book, which has zillions of different paradiddle combinations. It's a really terrific book, kind of like Stick Control, but really focused just on paradiddle ideas and concepts. Very hard to find. From ni- written, I think, in about nine in the late thirties. Um, but uh, along those lines, you can make your practice focus. So, say every day at work you have a lunch break or you have a coffee break. Take ten minutes and work on one thing, one rudiment, one exercise out of a book, and just say, "I'm going to work on this for the next week or the next two weeks," or "This is going to be my coffee break rudiment," or um, you know, do something small and master it. That's that's the way I like to work. It's a more practical, functional way to practice uh, than simply kind of noodling around and running through a million different things at once. Find a, ru- a rudiment to warm up on before your gigs or a warm-up routine. Routines are things that allow us to dig more deeply into what we're working on. We could do it in bite-sized pieces, in small segments, and then kind of grow from there. So the deliberate practice uh, podcast that I did really addresses this head-on, um, but it's a it's a good idea. So remember, small amounts of reinforcement like this can make a huge difference when it comes to the speed at which you absorb uh, movement into your muscle memory. All right, number two. Um, carry, I, I sort of refer to it, but carry the good book with you. And by the good book, I don't mean necessarily the Bible, although if you want to carry a Bible, that's awesome too. But um, what I mean is um, some kind of keep with you something to practice out of. So we talked about a rudiment, perhaps, um, you know, there's never a bad time to to sight read. I have a whole thing that I give my students, which I call singing and snapping, and maybe I'll actually do a whole podcast on this particular technique. The idea is it, it helps to learn jazz phrasing. And I use the syncopation book by Ted Reed, um, but it, you can use different different things with this singing and snapping technique. And uh, so we've got a few minutes. Say you don't have a pair of sticks. No problem. Sing and snap a page out of the Ted Reed book. Uh, you can use the same technique with a uh, real book charts. So if you're learning, say, a head for your, uh, you know, a jazz head for, for a group that you're working with, get the real book page. Learn that. Sing and snap that particular melody. Um, you know, uh, and so, you know, this is a great way to continue to practice and move rhythmically and think about music if you don't have sticks with you. Um, other kinds of, of reinforcement that I think are really important is to is the way we listen to music. So a lot of drummers are like, I got to learn, you know, 40 songs or something for this upcoming show that I'm doing. Well, listen to them, not just when you're in your practice room, but all the time. Create playlists. If you're commuting, listen when you're commuting. If you have to walk somewhere, listen while you're walking. Um, Put these things on repeat. Listen to them when you go to sleep at night. Keep them running while you're sleeping. You know, our... Most of us can can sit down and, you know, say we have a favorite song, we can play that favorite song while, you know, without having learned it, if we know it well enough, if we've memorized it. So, 
familiarize yourself with music. That's essentially another technique. When you're making breakfast in the morning, put on the tunes. Uh, In essence, this isn't necessarily practicing, but like I said, the more familiar that you are with a piece of music, the easier it's going to be for you to play it. Um, Of course, you know, in terms of learning 40 songs, I would say chart them out, which whether you can write music or read music or not, you can chart songs out. You can come up with your own technique for doing that, and maybe that's another topic. Uh, But certainly these are ways to not only practice, but learn outside the practice room. And if you listen and really develop your ability to listen, then when you go into the practice room to to um, focus on these tunes that you're learning, you'll have a deeper insight into what's happening. Because, of course, the more we listen to music, the more we pick up the nuances, just like with anyone's favorite song. The more you, you listen to that, the reason it becomes your favorite song is because you listen over and over and over again. The more you listen, the deeper you dig. Okay, number three, feet. So, you know, we often find ourselves just sitting around, dentist waiting room, conference call at work while talking to our spouse on the phone if we're away from them, in transit on the subway or a bus or a train. Um, Make use of this time by working on various foot stretches. I have a sort of a bunch of different stretches that I do with my students and I tell them, Don't just do this when it's time to play or practice. Do this all the time. Continue to reinforce this idea behind this particular stretch. You can work on bass, drum, and hi-hat combinations. That's something that often, you know, we don't think too much about when working on a groove, say. And I like to do this, again, with, with my students. So we learn a particular groove. And yeah, you get it down competently. But now, what if you go back and play that groove again and simply think about what the feet are doing in relation to each other? And what if you pulled that out and made that a separate exercise and just got the two feet to work together? You probably would realize that things aren't quite as tight as you'd hoped. And when you isolate, say, those two-foot combinations and get them to work together, now, uh, you know, you develop a, a, a deeper relationship with that groove. You could do the same. Obviously, we tend to work on just the hands, but what about, say, the uh, bass drum and hi-hat, you know, whether you're playing the hi-hat with your hand or there's a, a hi-hat foot involved. Uh, what about those two? What about the hi-hat and the ride cymbal? You know, and, and these things, I, I tend to teach a lot of jazz stuff, so this, of course, when we're dealing with four-way coordination becomes... Um, a bigger deal. But in every kind of exercise that you do, each limb has a different relationship to another limb. I call this interdependence as opposed to independence. Independence means each limb does different things than the other limbs, and that's, we all focus on that, that's very important. But interdependence involves how the limbs either connect or don't connect. Do they land together at the same place? If so, how are we setting them up so that they can come down together? Or if they're moving in opposite directions, one is coming up while the other one is coming down, how does that work? So, you know, the, this idea of separating the feet and just working on different foot ideas is something we can extrapolate outside the practice room. And we can be working on all these kinds of things. Um, for that matter, you know, we can tap out hand and foot patterns, again, without sticks. So not just feet, 
but all four limbs. And I have a couple cool stories here. Um, I remember when I was uh, just getting out of music school in 1991, I was part of a, a of sort of assisting with a drum and bugle uh, drum line, I guess, I guess you could say a drum line, sort of like a DCI type of a drum line, a drum corps international, you know, type, type drum line. It was, it was kids in the San Fernando Valley. They were high school kids. They weren't, it wasn't at a very high level, but the guy who ran that drum line managed to get Tom Float to come visit. Tom Float is one of the all-time gurus of drum corps. He's the guy who in the 1980s took the Conquer Blue Devils to their position as probably the most dominant of all the drum corps of the last generation, still are today. And um, Tom Float came and did this sort of masterclass for these kids, and I was very excited. I took the class with him. He had a bunch of amazing handouts, and I learned a bunch of great stuff. And one of the things I learned, two things I learned from him, one is that you can, if you can tap out the rudiments that you want to play with your fingers, essentially, on a table or with your hands, and just sort of peck away at them, it's very, very instructive. Second thing I learned from him is that when you are playing with sticks, if you take one stick and you put it on your leg and play the pattern with one stick on the leg and the other stick on a pad, it's very instructive because, again, you're pulling things apart and analyzing just the role of one hand. And what you might realize when you do that is, wow, that one hand is all over the place, and that's why the rudiment isn't sounding good. Then switch them. So now put the other hand on the pad and the other hand on the leg and do the same thing. This is one of the best practice tools that I, I've ever learned because you can quickly break things down, get deeper inside stuff that you're working on and really realize what the problems may or may not be with it. So I know I started out talking about feet, but it sort of expanded uh, to talk about ways to to work on what you're working on without being in a practice room. Um, and here's a, here's a story along those lines. So I, um, in the early 2000s, I had the opportunity to uh, audition for a somewhat well-known band. I'm not going to say who, but part of the deal was I had to um, learn the groove to several of their songs, of course. And one, one of these Grooves was very syncopated 16th note, kind of a funk pattern. And uh, so I spent, you know, quite a while learning that groove and really digging in. And then I had to actually fly uh, up to Sacramento to audition for the audition. And I remember I, uh, I was sitting there on the plane tapping out this funk groove, just trying to drill it into my muscle memory, doing exactly what I'm talking about here. I was on the plane, and I was working on it with tapping my four limbs out. And I remember at least one passenger looked back at me like, what the hell are you doing? And I just smiled politely and continued on. (laughs) So, um, you know, we always annoy people with our tapping, but that's their problem, not ours. Um, Another couple of really interesting ideas. Practice while you walk. Uh, what do I mean by this? Well, I, for example, uh, live in New York City. And in New York City, you do a lot of walking. And walking offers us great opportunities to uh, practice because it's rhythmic, right? So 
what a lot of my students do and what I've talked about and I've done, put on a click while you're walking. Put on a click that approximately matches the speed with which your pace is happening. And then, you know, um, sort of, you can walk in time, you can walk on the offbeats, you can walk on, you can walk in a polyrhythmic way, doing groups of three against the click of your walk, um, groups of five, you know, whatever. You can make your steps be five in a phrase. Uh, there's a million creative solutions that you can, that you can do. And certainly, you know, there's this sort of mathematical concept behind walking. But I think in a larger sense, and this, this was sort of driven home to me, when I was in music school in 1991, I took a lesson with the great studio, L.A. studio drummer Willie Ornelas, who, not that well known today, but is, was really in the 70s and 80s and 90s, one of the biggest guys doing TV scores and, and sessions in Los Angeles, has a wickedly incredible pocket he was in a fantastic group in L.A. called Funk Attack that, when I was there in the early 90s, were on the club scene, one of the kind of the L.A. yo-cat bands of guys that were just, they would they play James Brown tunes and Sly and the Family Stone tunes and stuff, and just amazing. But um, Willie said something. He said, yeah, walk. You know, walk. Just walk around the room while you're working on stuff. And I think the larger point here is that what we do as drummers, we often sort of divorce from the fact that, you know, uh, I always say drumming is dancing, and we're here to make people dance. And by dance, I don't just mean, you know, partner dancing, like a swing dance, or Scooby-Doo standing there wagging your hips. The, the, The idea of dancing is you're connecting to a fundamental rhythmic heartbeat, I suppose you could say, that everybody has. Everybody can appreciate rhythm. Even if everybody can't create rhythm, everybody can feel rhythm. And great drummers in whatever it is, whether it's African religious ceremony or whether it's marching or whether it's a metal band, the idea behind the rhythm that we create is to grab large groups of people, get them to connect with their mutual appreciation of rhythm, and move them from point A to B, whatever that goal may be. And So, in essence, if we cannot dance ourselves, how are we going to make anyone else dance? And I think walking is a great way to feel that dance. How are you going to walk? How are you going to move? How are you going to feel things happening? So, even if you just put on different music and try to capture the element of how that music moves, uh, that's a great way to practice this idea of dance. And because what what you do as a drummer is you're essentially an actor, Right, And if you say you're in a cover band and now you're going to play a Rolling Stones tune, well, you've got to become Charlie Watts. You've got to act the part of Charlie Watts. And that means when it comes to drumming, you've got to move like Charlie Watts. You've got to groove like Charlie Watts. You've got to feel how he feels when he makes that beat happen. And walking is a great way to do this. So maybe, you know, a lot of people have dogs. When you take your dog out for a walk in the morning, I have one student in Australia. He was telling me how he does this takes his his dog out and he not only does polyrhythms and things but put on you know put on a tune and just try to walk with the intent of 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 that drummer of that feel that they're creating the reason that you know a hundred different drummers can play the most basic rock beat in their particular tunes and sound a hundred different ways is because of their individual feel that they bring to that groove so that's a great 
you know, don't just listen to music, walk to music, move to music. Even if you don't call it dancing, that's what it is. Think about the beginning of the movie Saturday Night Fever, right? Staying alive, killing James Gadson groove in that track. And there's John Travolta. And what's he doing? He's walking down the street to the music full of attitude, strutting. Well, that's, that's exactly what I'm talking about. So when you're out walking, become the music that you're listening to. Or play little rhythmic games with yourself against a click or, you know, with the way that, that you walk. Another sort of interesting corollary aspect to this is inanimate objects. So perhaps many of you have seen the video of a washing machine uh, or you've been sent it because you're a drummer. So everybody's got to send you any video they see related to drumming, right? So it's this washing machine that's kind of moving to its own rhythm, creating its own kind of cool, funky groove. And there's another video of a tractor, and this, it's like some kind of band in Scandinavia somewhere, Norway or Finland. And there's a jug band and they turn on this tractor and the tractor chugs along and plays this groove. And this little string band or jug band plays a tune along with the tractor and the tractor's keeping time. So I, I don't know about you, but I always have this experience. Another great story is, uh, comes from Bob Moses, the, the really terrific Boston area drummer who wrote this great book called Drum Wisdom. Uh, again, he's not that well-known outside Boston, but he's the guy that, that's playing on uh, Pat Metheny's very first record, Bright Size Life. He was an amazing drummer, still around today. He's a very deep spiritual guy. Um, you don't write a book called Drum Wisdom unless you're a deep spiritual guy. He actually goes by a, a different name. Uh, today he goes by Rock Alam. But check him out. He's really got some very, very deep wisdom and understanding of rhythm and he discusses how when he used to drive home from gigs, you know, he's in Boston, the weather there is rather inclement, so it would be raining, and his windshield wipers would be going, and he would be grooving with his windshield wipers, and I'm sure many of you out there have done the same. Your windshield wipers create a rhythm, and you start responding to that rhythm. So, you know, rhythm is out there everywhere, all around us, in wind turbines, in, you know, generators, in washing machines and tractors in, you know, sometimes in animals, birds that make a repetitive sound. Uh, I used to sit, at, when I lived in Los Angeles, my house was kind of up in the hills and there were lots of animal sounds. It was very quiet at night and I would hear these kind of bird things and it sort of, I was checking out those rhythms and digging those rhythms. So I know some of this maybe is a little out for some of you, but experiencing the rhythms in the world is a really terrific way to be a drummer. Um, So keep your eyes and ears open wherever you go, whatever you do. Rhythm is out there everywhere. And again, you can groove along with it, uh, commune with it, okay? Now, I'm going to go a totally different direction. Well, first, because I said practice while you walk, and I want to give you one more thing you could do to practice while you walk. And that is Work on stick stuff. Um, I do sort of a stick-on-stick, stick-click thing, where I just click the sticks together in a rhythmic way. I used to do that a lot in the Royal Crown Review shows. It was always a a part of my solo. And uh, there's, you know, of course, stick twirls are very popular. So you have two things you could do while walking, and I used to work on my stick twirls and stick-on-stick clicking 
patterns and, and rhythms while I would walk in New York. Uh, it's a great thing to do. You might, you might, uh, especially if you're doing uh, stick twirls, you're gonna, you're gonna drop your sticks a lot. So just be prepared. That you're gonna be picking them up. But what's great is that living in New York City, there are so many. You know, people are just, they've seen it all. And so nobody pays any attention to you whatsoever, even though you're walking down the street, clacking away or spinning away with your sticks. So there's a couple other great ideas for walking. If you live near a park, go take a brisk walk and work on your stick stuff. It's a great way to get exercise and practice at the same time. Okay, so I was just talking about sort of tapping into either nature or the world around you to practice. I've talked about very focused practice, uh, deliberate practice, being very involved in what you're practicing. Now I'm going to go totally the other way and talk about mindless practice, uh, which, again, you can do when you're not in your practice room. So, of course, the biggest form of mindless practice that a lot of us do is we practice in front of the television. And the reason that I say that mindless practice is important is that Whereas practicing in a uh, deliberate kind of a way uh, consciously drills various and sundry skills into our muscle memory, we can really cement those skills by practicing unconsciously. In other words, while our attention is perhaps diverted elsewhere. Now, this is tricky because I don't want listeners to walk away from this podcast saying, well, Daniel said, I don't have to practice anymore. All I have to do is play in front of the TV and I'm going to be great. That's not what I mean. What I mean is TV practice is a good corollary, a good uh, secondary method of practicing where you are not thinking about what you're doing. In essence, it reinforces technique for us in more subconscious ways. And again, the incidental music in the show you're watching, the music in a commercial, all of these things offer us new ideas and rhythms to play with, to play against, to respond to. And I know, you know, quite a few drummers take this opportunity to, to do this. Also, I teach my students a lot of movement uh, type things to do with the stick where a pad is not even involved. So if we're working on the fulcrum and the French grip, or we're working on a uh, traditional grip, uh, sort of what I call the A-B motion, and we're kicking the stick up and letting it come down, none of these exercises involve a pad at all. So you can be working on these and reinforcing these again while you're hanging out in front of the television. And if you have a spouse or boyfriend or girlfriend or family that you do these things with, well, these exercises are, are silent. Of course, if it's a pad workout you're doing, that's on you to negotiate with your loved ones, <laughs> as far as how much they of that they're willing to tolerate or not. I, I think there are some fairly silent pads, but in any case, TV practice. And of course, if we're talking about TV practice, then we absolutely have to talk about the second most popular form of unconscious practice, which I call dashboard practice. So I had mentioned earlier, keep a pair of sticks in your keep a pair of sticks in your car and work on the dashboard. And I'm sure those of you who have done this before have found favorite spots both on the left side and on the right side uh, to to work on stuff. Now again, you know, I don't I don't suggest that this be your only form of practice. And of course, uh, you have to be very careful because you're operating a motor vehicle while you're driving. 
So I know that I one time drove from Portland, Oregon to Los Angeles, which was quite a long drive. I think it was, well, gosh, I don't even know how long it was, but it was, it took me a couple of days and I just put music on or whatever. And I just dashboard practiced the whole way. Again, if you have those practice tips on your sticks that I mentioned at the beginning, uh, you're less likely to damage your dashboard um, and, uh, you know, etc, etc. I know a lot of people use the steering wheel to practice on. You could tap out rhythms on the steering wheel. Um, and uh, so it's a, it's a similar idea of kind of unconscious practice. But again, I warn you, this is, should not be your only form of practice. You should also practice very deliberately, very consciously, and sort of use this as a corollary or secondary way to sort of reinforce things unconsciously. Because of course, when we develop as drummers, first things require our attention to learn them. And then after a while, they become effortless and we simply do them unconsciously. So this is sort of a way to get you to to that phase. Okay, so now let's, uh, as I mentioned before, I had discussed this topic a little bit on my Facebook fan page, Daniel Glass, Drummer, Author, Educator. And I got some, I sort of asked, hey, well, what are some of your, tell me what are some of the ways that you folks out there, you readers, make the world your practice room? And I got back a few interesting comments that I'd like to share and maybe comment on them a little bit myself. Uh, one, one fellow wrote in, as you suggest, while watching TV, I will air drum with the sticks, playing rudiments, since there is no rebound. Great for your hands, rebound muscles. So I have a couple of thoughts about this. Number one, I don't know if how much I necessarily agree with this. I think a lot of drummers feel that that drumming, getting better at drumming is about developing muscle, similarly to going to the gym and bulking up. And that if you do a lot of, you know, very repetitive rudiments with very heavy drumsticks and, uh, you know, these kinds of things that developing your muscles is what's going to make you a better drummer. I don't necessarily know if I agree with that. Um, and again, I feel that we can actually hurt ourselves this way and that the goal of being a good drummer is not so much about forcing things, but learning how to relax and using less effort as opposed to more effort. And I think those kinds of practice demand that you use more and more effort. I also feel that If we have a stick in our hand, we need to learn how to really deal with rebound. So when we just air drum and we're not hitting anything, then again, we're using more muscle force to sort of force the stick in every direction. However, this comment by this fellow, you know, first of all, if that works for you, then then cool. If you really feel that that helps you develop. But it, it inspired me a comment that I once heard about Jim Keltner, one of the great studio musicians. And one of the things that he said was his secret to going into a session and being, you know, really having it together and nailing the track, which of course is a skill you need to have as a studio musician, he would sort of air drum the rhythm before he would play it. So he would sit there and just kind of work on sort of that hand-foot coordination stuff that we were talking about before. And I think this kind of relates to the old adage, if you can sing it, you can play it. And what do I mean by that? By 
by singing something, what I mean is if you can actually sing the rhythm that you want to play, and I don't mean la 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 la, I mean if you can sing it, do right? If you can sort of verbalize what it is that you want to play, you will be able to play it more easily. And this is a, a very common adage. If you go to music school, you know, you often hear it or you hear the negative. If you can't sing it, you can't play it. But I prefer to think of things in the positive. If you can sing it, then you will be able to play it. But you should try it sometime. When you're learning a groove, see if you can physically speak that groove or at least the parts of the groove that are difficult. And if you can begin to verbalize it, then you can, then you can play it. But as it relates to this Jim Keltner thing, and I, I suppose this idea of tapping it out, if you can tap it, then you can play it as well. So, you know, a lot of times we look at something or we, we, we look at a groove as it's written or we hear a groove and then we just rush to try to play it or we don't sort of prepare ourselves to play it and that can, that can be a rude awakening, I guess, as to how hard it is or we realize that we don't know it as well as we thought. So by sort of preparing yourself by tapping it out or air drumming it maybe, moving the way you'd move around the toms, you know, or something like that, um, I think it'd be a good practice to get our body together to, to jump in and, and be, be more prepared when we sit down to play. And of course, the, the picture of the studio musician under the gun, you know, maybe you, you're sitting there waiting to begin while they're working on other things, but you can't make noise uh, they're testing other instruments or they're having a conversation and you don't want to be, you know, making a lot of sound at the booth. You can be working and on your groove sort of with this air drumming idea. So I appreciate that comment and certainly uh, always want to learn everything I can from someone like Jim Keltner. Here's another comment that I just thought was great. Uh, this is actually from a friend of mine who is a, is a former cop, I think. And he said, Stakeouts were always a great place to practice. No one ever thought the a-hole beating his steering wheel with drumsticks was a cop. <laughs> so I think that's like, that's great. What a, what a, what a nice uh, form of cover. You know, you're just a drummer. Who, who the hell would ever think that a drummer would be a cop who was sitting there on a stakeout watching someone? So I li- love that comment. Uh, somebody says, uh, somebody else said, I tend to fidget when I sit. I turn that into independence drills. I like that because I think drummers by nature are fidgety people. In other words, especially when I was younger. Now I'm old and, and tired all the time. But when I was young, if I didn't have a pair of drumsticks in my hand and it went on you know, for a couple of days that I didn't, I was tapping on my knees, tapping on a table, um, making myself and everyone else crazy. I had to tap out rhythms. I was driven to do it. And I'm sure many of you listening can relate. So, you know, develop a particular independence drill. Turn that, you know, just kind of nervous tapping into something practical, into a way of practicing something so that you're always working on something, right? That's the idea of of making the world your practice room is that you are always able to be working on something. You are not wasting a minute of the day. And the last comment is sort of one that relates to, to what we have already discussed, but another of my students wrote uh, a comment. He said, I record the heads of jazz standards I'm trying to learn, and I play them over and over again while making breakfast. So this is a form of deliberate practice. Instead of maybe listening to an eight-minute jazz song, if really what you want to learn is the melody, which is, of course, the most important part, and every drummer should be able to sing the melody, even if it's out of key, 
you should be able to go, you know, and sing, sing out the melody, at least sing the rhythms of the melody. So what, what song is this? Do ba da ba do ba do ba da ba do da do ba da ba do da do ba da ba do da. Right? That's in the mood. There's just no notes with it. So, you know, if you can do that, you're singing the rhythm of the melody. And if you're trying to learn that song, then why not just take the melodies and make a playlist of the melodies, nothing else. And then you just hear that melody and you drill it into your head. So you sort of repeat the process that you went through uh, for your favorite song, where you just wanted to listen to it over and over again, except now you're learning through the same mechanism, but you're doing it in in a very, very focused way. So I appreciate that comment as well. So that will wrap up our podcast on turning the world into your practice room, your personal practice room, the entire world, your entire day, everything you do while you go through your day, whenever you have a free moment, whenever you have some time, instead of panicking about going into the practice room, and of course you need to do that, but how much more great functional practicing can you get done if you make better use of the time that you are away from the practice room? So uh, what I'd love to hear is maybe some of your favorite non-practice practice situations. Uh, Feel free to share a comment uh, on the Drummer's Resource uh, page where this podcast is listed. Of course, you can always send me an email or come join us at the Daniel Glass Drummer Author Educator page. And uh, for the complete list of podcasts, I I should mention this, I, uh, I now have a page on my website that is dedicated just to listing all of my podcasts. So you can find the complete list if you want to hear the other ones that you maybe have not heard yet. And that simply, that link is danielglass.com forward slash podcasts, lowercase p, and it's a plural podcasts. So I thank you again for listening to the Daniel Glass Show on Drummer's Resource. Have a swing a day, and I will see you next time around.